0: Hello and welcome to the Issacoss webinar series presentation on managing lateral ankle ligament injuries, the state of the art. My name is Kenneth Hunt. I work with Issacoss as the chair of the leg ankle uh, foot committee and uh, I'm fortunate to be the moderator for today's webinar. Uh, This webinar will be recorded. Uh, I'd like to introduce you to our panelists uh, pictured here. Uh, Mac Hogan is from the University of Pittsburgh. Eric Giza is from UC Davis. Nana Mandola from Duke, John Luigi uh, Canata from Italy, and uh, and Andy Velkovich from Canada. Uh, We're very fortunate to have this uh, esteemed uh, group uh, join us and uh, provide some presentations. Again, our topic today is Managing Ankle Ligament Injuries, the State of the Art. Um, Thank you once again for attending. Uh, We will be taking questions, so you can use the Q&A icon on the uh, webinar uh, to ask questions of our panelists, and we'll try to get to as many of those as we can. Uh, with that, uh, let's begin. Uh, we're gonna start with, uh, uh, I'll go ahead and start with my talk on current techniques for lateral ligament repair. So again, we're talking about these inversion injuries, which uh, results in injury to the ATFL and CFL ligaments and can often result in subtalar instability in addition to lateral ankle instability. Surgical planning is really important here as uh, many of these cases, in fact, most of these cases are going to have some intra-articular finding which may impact outcome, is important to address uh, at the same time. So I'm really going to focus, as I said, on current surgical techniques. Um, and I'm going I'm to pitch this as my algorithm. I use a version of each of these techniques in my practice, and it's, uh, it's always for specific reasons. So I'm going to start by presenting on the open Brostrom. This is the classic uh, Brostrom repair described 50 years ago by Brostrom and then modified by Gould. In 1980, to include the extensor retinaculum. So this this is still the gold standard, and uh, still the way uh, most of us will approach our lateral ligament repairs. So as you can see, um, I will the the my standard is to repair the lateral ligaments with a pants over vest style repair, and then I'll oversew the ligament to the extensor retinaculum. Now um, I'll repair the CFL through the same incision by retracting the perineal tendons, and I just use a simple box stitch. Uh, in that ligament to to tighten it up. Uh, Suture anchors can be very valuable for this. Uh, It does get you a nice footprint of the ligament against the bone. And so when those are available, uh, I think they can be very valuable. Um, We looked at this in the lab. This was an ISICOS-funded study that that the Leg-Ankle-Foot Committee uh, did a few years ago. Um, and, And we found that when we added the CFL repair, it actually increased the stiffness of the construct, reduced the medial translation of the subtalar joint, Uh, and resulted in a higher failure torque. So there is some biomechanical value to repairing the CFL um, even before ligament healing has taken place. So as I mentioned, uh, Acevedo and Mangone, who really popularized the arthroscopic repair in the US, um, said that they don't think that the CFL repair is necessary based on their clinical results. And clinical results, of course, should always be respected. Um, a, A survey administered to a larger group of foot and ankle surgeons from around the world, including many on this panel, um, suggested that the majority of re- respondents, almost 90 percent, repair the CFL under some circumstances. So it's a it's an important topic. My decision making is really based on the subtalar joint. If I see true subtalar instability, and I know that that CFL and the related ligaments are unstable, I'm much more likely to open this because I can't, I can't get the repair I need arthroscopically. It's also important to note that you can see the CFL often uh, with your arthroscopy, especially if you routinely scope the subtalar joint, uh, and you can definitely test it uh, intraoperatively to see if it's unstable and make your decision there. So the arthroscopic brostrum in in my practice is when there's not a lot of CFL laxity and I don't have a lot of subtalar instability. Um, This technique, if you're facile with arthroscopy is very straightforward. You can identify the ATFL footprint. I usually use two anchors that are advanced uh, arthroscopically uh, into the bone. Uh, I'll advance these anchors through both the uh, ATFL ligament and the extensor retinaculum. So I'm sort of doing the Gould repair uh, at the same time. Um, and that it's a very small incision to bring the sutures out through the skin and uh, and I use an arthroscopic knot tire to to tension down the ligaments. And uh, the the result is generally a a very stable ankle. It's it's surprising how stable these feel with both anterior drawer and tailor tilt testing after the arthroscopic repair. So looking at results, there's an increasing number of publications comparing the arthroscopic Brostrom to the OPEN technique. Uh, This level three retrospective study showed that the arthroscopic technique was better in terms of pain relief, AOFAS scores, uh, and complication rate. Um, uh, so it's, it's definitely a viable technique and it's something that I use in my practice. Um, so the open brush with a, with a ligament augment or internal brace is the, is the sort of trade name for it. Um, I'll use this with a lot of tissue laxity when there's poor tissue quality or when there's a little bit of a varus alignment where I feel like I need something a little more robust that's gonna limit stretching. Now, Dr. Gies is gonna go through this in more detail, so I'll just show briefly uh, a, a, a quick case. Um, th- this uh, internal braces uh, by standard is used to essentially go over the top of the ATFL. It's ins- inserted, um, or excuse me, it's fastened with absorbable uh, biointerference screws in- into the fibula and the talus. So and again, these are typically in my practice cases that have a lot of tissue laxity. I'm still doing a Brostrom. I'm still tightening the Brostrom um, you know, as I would in, in any case, which is in full eversion. And then I'll restore the hind foot to a neutral alignment to, so that I make sure when I, when I place this interference screw and fasten the internal brace, uh, that uh, I'm not making it too tight. Uh, and again, this, this provides a, a lot of stability with both drawer and tailor tilt testing. Um, so finally, allograft reconstructions. Now, uh, there's been a, a lot of movement on this from a technique standpoint, and we have uh, you know, several uh, experts uh, in, in, uh, in our group from around the world that have perfected these techniques. Now, allografts uh, historically have been described by a number of different people. Um, uh, they're, they're, autograft is an opportunity here as well. The, the value here is you can get an anatomic reconstruction while, while not sacrificing the perineal tendons. And that's really important to restore normal kinematics at the ankle and the subtalar joint. So I use this technique that was popularized by Mark Glazebrook and Masato Takao and, and that group, um, the anti-roll technique. Um, it's essentially fastening the, the ligament to the uh, fibula and then splitting it with one limb go, going to the talus and one limb going to the calcaneus. So you're reconstructing both ligaments from approximately the same footprint. Now this has been described uh, with an arthroscopic or percutaneous technique as well, um, using four portals. The benefit here being you don't have all that dis- soft tissue dissection. There's less swelling, there's less pain, and ostensibly faster rehabilitation. So that the, the French group has published their outcomes on this: uh, high satisfaction, improved outcome scores. The complication rate is a little bit higher than what we typically see: uh, 10% nerve injury and 4% reoperation for, for wound problems. So quickly on return to sport, Um, we generally return patients to sport when they've mastered their sport-specific drills without discomfort. Uh, We look back at the literature and found that the average return to sport is 4.7 months. We're certainly doing that faster with current rehab techniques today, uh, but that's a very important uh, uh, topic as you're thinking about rehabilitating these athletes. Uh, So finally, in summary, uh, lateral instability is very common. Uh, Outcomes of surgeries are very good and getting better. Um, uh, many recent advances, advances in techniques that are really important to pay attention to in your own practice. And I would advocate that there's really no right or single procedure for lateral ligament repairs. You should have your own algorithm, perfect your techniques, and make sure you're mindful of uh, all of the other patient factors. Um, so with that, I'm going to stop share, and uh, I'm going to hand it off to our uh, our next panelist. I want to welcome Mac Hogan from Pittsburgh. He's going to speak to us on uh, management of syndesmotic injuries. Uh, so, Mac, if you want to share your screen Thanks, and unmute yourself.
1: Yep. Thanks, uh, Ken, the group, uh, uh, for the opportunity to speak to everyone today uh, on uh, current management of syndesmosis injuries uh, and a uh, number of experts on the, uh, here uh, in this regard, and I'll get going. So um, this is a personal injury that's near and dear to my heart as I myself experienced a syndesmotic injury uh, at the age of 17 as a fracture dislocation back when uh, a single screw was the standard of care uh, with a Weber C fracture dislocation and uh, I still can walk. So no disclosures. Uh, The syndesmosis injury, a brief overview, very common in athletes. Majority of these isolated are isolated injuries, but you also can have uh, a, a lateral ankle ligament injury, as Dr. Hunt mentioned previously. Uh, high ankle injuries uh, account for 1% to 10%. This is the high ankle sprain. The spectrum goes from mild to severe, inherently stable, all the way up to the point of unstable and disabling, particularly in the elite jumping uh, athlete. Um, you you want The mortise is very important, and this is where it comes from, the Greek understanding of uh, the syndesmosis and the static stabilizers around the ankle. Uh, and uh, and, and this is one of the most, in my mind, complex joints and complexes uh, in the body. Uh, and the anatomy and appreciating this uh, is that the, is, it is a conglomerate, obviously, of our uh, uh, syndesmosis, as well as uh, in confluence with the lateral ankle ligaments as discussed previously, but the AITFL, the interosseous membrane, uh, the PITFL, uh, and the inferior transverse ligament, and also the very important deltoid complex. Uh, and so when, in a, understanding this, We have to recognize the role that all of these play uh, in this injury. Uh, And so uh, the anatomy, uh, again, appreciated here. uh, As we really go forward and understand the bony anatomy and reductions, uh, we have to have an appreciation for this with our advanced imaging and restoring uh, the anatomy. Uh, And as we look closer, uh, we're using our advanced imaging, uh, appreciating uh, the anatomy and the role it plays and how we are identifying the injury. Uh, and so the deltoid, uh, a complex a complex uh, ligament that is uh, variable opinion on how we approach this uh, across the camps of uh, sports surgeons, uh, trauma surgeons, and uh, foot and ankle surgeons alike. <clears throat> Uh, this has held up test of time in regards to the disruption in biomechanical study of ligament restraints, uh, this study from 1994. And uh, we often use this looking at the role of the PITFL uh, and the posterior edema that may contribute to the severity of gauging this injury. Uh, but the mechanism uh, is usually an external rotation type stress, uh, which essentially uh, impacts the deltoid, the AITFL and interosseous membrane. Uh, and so when we look at this, often uh, external rotation, uh, severely uh, and also occasionally concomitant fractures with that forced external rotation and dorsiflexion. Uh, when we look at a study done here by Dr. Hunt uh, during this uh, several years ago, uh, looking at the epidemiology of these injuries uh, and the role they play uh, and again uh, 64% being lateral, the syndesmosis being a large remainder. Uh, And also, as we look at this further, the high ankle sprain having a longer return or recovery compared to the lateral ankle sprain, as you can appreciate here, uh, 14 times more common, 75% in contact, Uh, all do not require surgery, but the time to return uh, was often longer uh, with these injuries. Um, So with our clinical evaluation, uh, we look at our mechanism of injury uh, and sport, collision, footwear, ability to ambulate, uh, location of pain, timing, and the aggravating factors. And with physical exam, this is critically important. So uh, our uh, most common area of pain right over the syndesmosis uh, tends to palpation or the tendinous length has been described, pain over the deltoid, and also checking for proximal fibular pain and provocative tests. The Hopkins uh, consent article from 1990 and the squeeze test has stood the test of time. uh, With a squeeze test, and this is positive, showing that 90 plus percent of individuals had some level of uh, heterotopic ossification at the level of the syndesmosis and interosseous membrane uh, a year later, confirming injury. Uh, And so as we go, the cross-leg test, I like this in the setting of chronic injuries. Uh, or individuals who are presented where a somewhat vague presentation, uh, essentially crossing the leg and placing a medial, a downward pressure on the knee, and even slight gravity or additional external rotations of the ankle can elicit pain at the syndesmosis. Uh, furthermore, as we go to our external rotation stress test, uh, this is uh, obviously uh, the test that you often in the acute setting can only do once, uh, and, and essentially in these athletes, they often want to kick you or punch you uh, after you do this, but this is a great test uh, and again in the acute setting uh, and also in the office gently. Uh, and so the fibula translation test in some of our smaller ankles, uh, sometimes difficult with the NFL linemen, but otherwise taking that hand, stabilizing the fibula and translating it, you often can elicit pain as well. Um, the stabilization test of the uh, tape test Um, that uh, Dr. Amendola and his team uh, elicited, this helping you identify if you can tape them in the supramalleolar region and they can uh, essentially do a single leg raise at that time. Often this is uh, a sign of a more severe injury, uh, but again, taping them can possibly get them through sport or through a season to a better point of surgical intervention. How useful are these tests? Uh, Diagnostic accuracy is always difficult uh, in our realm. Um, Accuracy of each test can be very low. There is a lot of variability across examiners. Uh, The squeeze test has some of the best uh, reliability and the external rotation stress test, Uh, but you're not relying on this solely and therefore we utilize imaging regularly. Uh, And so as we go into our imaging assessment and into treatment, uh, our weight bearing films, assessing our overlaps is important to recognize this from our trauma training, uh, our AP uh, and overlap as well as our normal tip fib overlap and clear space. Uh, and our mortise view uh, and essentially understanding that often there can be anatomic variants for individuals and comparing to both sides or getting imaging on the uninjured side can be of value. Um, our stress views, uh, again, dorsiflexion and external rotation. You can do manual or gravity uh, testing this, this test to send dysmosis in the deep deltoid. A positive test can, with decreased overlap. And it's important to recognize even in the mortise view, you should have a component of overlap uh, in the incisura as you're looking at the posterior aspect of the incisura. And when you do not recognize that, it may be worth getting a contralateral image. Um, And again, on x-ray evaluation, uh, this is what has driven us to more advanced imaging. Uh, The sensitivity and specificity and accuracy of x-ray can be variable. Specificity is quite good in the setting of this x-ray you see here, which is grossly unstable, uh, but it's not always that clear cut. Uh, and so advanced imaging, particularly if there's a setting of fracture, CT scan can assist us. This is really country dependent. Um, uh, in some countries, the, the CT scan is standard. In others, the MRI, and, and some, for some of us, we get both in the setting of fracture uh, or assessment of bony uh, structures. So, uh, but in the setting of the syndesmotic injury, such as this with increased, uh, decreased overlap, clear space widening and an altered joint uh, angle, uh, we know we're thinking surgical intervention. And so for treatment, um, uh, with grades of it, surgical or non-operative, with great injuries of one, uh, I do go with a cam boot as uh, a normal x-ray. Uh, with uh, three, we know that these undergo surgery. It's those that are twos that really uh, uh, keep all of us stumped and thinking, uh, keep us up at night uh, and really have to have a good spider sense. Um, so this great algorithm um, is the algorithm I use. This was published by Dr. Hunnamandola. Uh, great review uh, and, and others and Fennett and others uh, several years ago. I use this algorithm at least as a baseline and foundation. And this is what I teach my trainees to use. So uh, without fracture, stable function rehabilitation, I feel is appropriate. And you monitor them closely. Uh, this can include, uh, for me, this is my protocol. One, um, essentially five to 10 days of uh, non-weight bearing to transition to weight bearing in a cam boot with the rest, ice, compression, elevation approach. Uh, in the subacute setting, then transition them, and then integrate them back to sport if possible uh, uh, over that seven to 10 day up to 14 day range. Um, allow pain and swelling to be your guide. Uh, and I would like to return them to play if they can do a 10 to 15 point hop test uh, without pain. Uh, but in the setting of the unstable injury, uh, without, fracture, without fracture, stable, but still having pain, uh, interoperative stress tests and ankle arthroscopy are usually helpful. They often are unstable. Uh, you know this by the time you get to the OR and you are thinking about uh, surgical intervention. So the competent deltoid in the grade two, uh, competent PITFL without diastasis, you can treat those like a grade one, but they take longer. Uh, if it's suspected to be unstable, they fail non-op. Uh, I do examine them under anesthesia uh, and then also examine them uh, with arthroscopy to assess the synosmosis. So uh, as we go to some final discussions here, arthroscopic assessment, you can appreciate your normal. Also an unstable AITFL uh, that we can appreciate here in the top right corner. Uh, and then uh, the drive through test of the shaver into uh, the fibrillar incisor region. Um, so with injuries, these surgical indications, grade three, unstable, masonous, ankle fractures, you're gonna fix these. Uh, and there are treatment options. Uh, tricortical screw versus a quadricortical screw uh, has stood the test of time of making no difference in most studies. Then obviously suture button or suspensory fixation versus combination or hybrids. So with your reductions, again, clamp or manual, you want to be as accurate as you can be. Human error does play into this. You want to appreciate your vectors of compression and force to reduction. Uh, With sinusmodic screws, long track record, low initial cost, no consensus, again, on size, material, number of cortices, uh, or position of the ankle. Um, and, And often they do need routine implant removal in the elite athlete, especially. Um, you can retain the screws, the studies show no difference, but in my elite athletes and algorithm, I remove them uh, in the three to four month range, sometimes longer. Uh, again, suspensory fixation, flexible, dynamic, allows a physiologic motion more accurately, can reduce the uh, syndesmosis with a ligamental taxis type reduction. Even if you're gonna go hybrid, I place the tightrope first. Um, adequate stability, no need for device removal, uh, it does have a higher initial cost. Uh, in comparison, there are a number of studies looking at this Uh, will continue to be a number of studies. This is a great summary of the screw versus suture button. uh, Gold standard of the screws, low cost rigid fixation, suture button listed here. Cons of the screws, malreduction can occur at a higher rate, implant removal, loosening or breakage with suture button fixation, higher initial cost or shorter track record. Um, Again, a number of studies looking and comparing this, uh, none definitively, but uh, both are options you should have. Uh, The fixation debate will go on. Um, for me, with my majority of my patients, I do utilize a buttress plate technique uh, to minimize the risk I have seen. We've seen locally here in Pittsburgh a fracture, uh, even through a suspensory fixation a hole. Uh, I use hybrid in some cases. It's really patient specific. This is an example of when there is a complete deltoid injury, as you can appreciate from here across. That's the posterior tib that my freer is pointing to. Uh, and then again, a buttress plate uh, and also a double anchor repair, uh, a double row anchor repair of the deltoid. So uh, in uh, c- conclusion with research, a number of people are looking into what is the best fixation technique uh, is still out there. This recently, our group published from our lab, again, uh, really trying to determine what is the appropriate technique, screw, plate, hybrid, s- sensory fixation alone. Um, and essentially, we determined that a single versus suture button screw is unable to restore native uh, kinematics, however, uh, double screw and hybrid can over constrain. So what is perfect? We may never know. So. Uh, still more questions than answers. Uh, we're all trying to figure it out uh, and uh, I look forward to learning more from the, those here on the line.
0: Excellent, Mac, uh, that was outstanding. Thank you for a great talk. Um, go ahead and uh, stop your share and I uh, will ask Eric Giza to start his screen share. Uh, Dr. Gieser comes to us from uh, UC Davis. Uh, he's gonna speak to us about the use of synthetic ligaments to optimize outcomes in ankle ligament surgery. Uh, Eric, take it away, thank you.
2: Great, thanks. Thanks everybody for tuning in, and I'm honored to, to be on your screen. Um, so, uh, I'm just gonna kinda do, a Ken did a great job of, of going over everything that uh, we needed to, to hear about the, the algorithm. And I'm just gonna do a little bit of a deeper dive into this Brostrum augmentation. So I wanna thank these folks, and, and I, here's my disclosures. So I, I similarly have a, an algorithm and and the trade name for this is internal brace, but really it's it's just an augmentation of the of the you know the the repair itself, so that you don't have to worry about immediate post op uh, difficulties. So um, going back and looking at the anatomy, um, Dr. Clanton had done some really nice um, looks at at anatomical uh, strength. And we know that the ATFL is really pretty weak ligament. It's 150 Newtons, but it undergoes plastic deformation. The CFL, as mentioned before, is much more stout and it fails at usually about 345 Newtons, but it's much stiffer. So I'm, I'm a proponent, as, as, as Dr. Hunt talked about earlier, to repair the CFL when possible. And then just bear in mind that the, we don't really repair the posterior talofibular ligament. Um, but it, And I haven't seen many studies about how often it's actually injured um, for this, but it certainly can play into uh, creating a symptomatic ostrigonum uh, when patients have severe injuries. And then don't forget about your retinaculum. Sometimes it's intact, particularly in younger patients, and I'll incorporate that into my repair always. Other anatomic considerations are the, the position of the fibula. Um, you can see this, but folks often have a more retropositioned fibula are at higher risk for having chronic ankle instability. Um, The other things to consider too, or don't forget about those peroneal tendons. They act as the dynamic stabilizer, and if they're weak um, and they're in spasm, that that can accompany chronic instability, and delayed peroneal uh, reaction time is associated with chronic instability. And there's a couple of studies, but this one was kind of neat, where they compared um, two groups of soccer players and tested them, And after the 45 minutes of play, they were retested. And basically it suggests a correlation that no matter what the sport is, even if you're you're running or you're hiking, that later on you're more susceptible or the second half of a game or an event, you're more susceptible to have an ankle sprain. And then this study from many years ago, I always thought was interesting because we rarely get six and a half year follow-up on ankle sprains that were not treated operatively. And the interesting part about it is that there was really no correlation between the frequency of the residual complaints and the severity of the sprain. So you're looking at nine, 9% nine of patients still had difficulty and 39% of patients had res- residual symptoms. So going into our testing, uh, the anterior drawer test obviously is, is very um, good standard test. You wanna internally rotate. Uh, the one thing to bear in mind is when when a patient has chronic instability and they're used to compensating for it with their, their peroneal tendons and spasm, if you're, they're on your exam table and you try and do an anterior drawer test and they're hesitant because they're guarding, you may not uh, assess that stability. So one of the things that I like to do is put the patient prone, which allows them to relax the peroneals uh, and the gastroc soleus, and you'll just use a little gentle medial to lateral force, as you can see here. And and a lot oftentimes you can really elicit that subtalar instability and the CFL instability. So if you look at it from side to side here, um, see the difference? You have that nice check ring on a normal, a normal one, and then somebody with chronic instability. So the prone instability exam also reminds you to look for perineals and then also double-check whether or not you have an ostrigonum by doing a crunch test, which is a hyperplanar flexion. Uh, test. Um, so the things we want to consider, and there's lots of literature out there, but to boil it down, obviously, Mifuli's study is very, uh, uh, very good because it's a nine-year follow-up. And what have we learned? Well, one of the things we learned was, although the outcomes overall were very good, um, but of those participating in sports preoperatively um, at nine years, 16% had decreased their level of athletic activity and 26% had abandoned all athletic activity secondary to their ankle. So maybe having some type of augmentation will help prove the test of time. The other thing people often ask is, can I move my brostrum early? And we know that motion is key, particularly for knee surgery, right? You don't fix an MCL and then, and then just lock it up in a cast for six weeks. So <clears throat> um, this study from Lou Schoen and Greg Guyton and folks um, obviously showed that um, um, unprotected motion was, was associated with lengthening of a brostrum repair in a cadaver model. So the other thing you ask is, is my brostrum repair as strong as a native ligament? And if you're doing a traditional brostrum, or even just using anchors, um, it's significantly weaker until the ligament itself uh, comes back to place. so you have to protect it. And then what if I immobilize my brostrum? You know, just put it in a cast. Won't that make it stiff? Uh, and then it'll be good to go. But if you look at this study, this was a rabbit study that was done. And you look at the difference between the, the, the ambulatory, which was somebody who had, one of the rabbits had a repair. Um, this is the control. And this is the one where they basically suspended them and put them in a little rabbit cast. And you can see how disorganized this collagen is and how the ambulatory one's not normal, but it's definitely closer to controls. So some good cadaver testing was done with this with this augmentation technique by the folks at Stebb and philippon um, Stedman Institute, and they basically found that it was as strong when you augment it as an intact ATFL. So if you augment this, um, you can let your patient's weight bear sooner, and some argue right away. So here's the thing we know. immobilization is, is detrimental to joints. Early stress damages your repair. So how do we bridge this gap? We want early motion, but we want to have, make sure that the collagen... Uh, stays intact and you regain your proprioceptive fibers etc so the this is a commercially available product um, and uh, is it's called the internal brace but i 'll call it augmentation uh, for the remainder of the lecture and um, where I like to use it in this algorithm is what do I do with someone who's this unstable and in in my hands in the in the older days I definitely would have gone right to an allograph for something that's unstable but this is where it fits in within my within my algorithm. So I start by doing a proper brostrum and I'll just go through this quickly. This, this, vi- this video is actually on ViewMedi. Um, so um, I, I do an ankle arthroscopy first. I do my standard incision and then you can just sweep away the tissues. Um, and I like to open up the inferior perineal retinaculum just so you can have a look at those peroneal tendons. Make sure there's not a low-lying muscle belly or evidence of a tear. Then you remove the ligament complex from the distal fibula, as you see here. And then find your ATFL, which you see there, or your IER is under my retractor there. And the CFL is in my, is in my forceps. And you dissect dissect them out as distinct structures, because the CFL often scars the lateral calc. So there's ATFL. And then CFL, it's a very powerful part of the correction. You can see that there. And this isn't a much bigger dissection. Um, prepare the distal fibula. And then you make, uh, I make a little longitudinal incision in the IER so I can find a spot on the tailor neck. And then I simply just place um, an anchor and there's some literature out there to show you the proper positioning and check it on x-ray. Then put in your, your anchor and then there it is ready to go. That's your augmentation. But remember, we still have to do a brostrum surgery. So whatever anchors you like to use for your ATFL and CFL, I place those, and then I drill and tap, and then here's what it looks like. You got your spot for your your CFL, your ATFL, and your your setup's all ready to go, and that's what it looks like once you have them all repaired, and then you're ready to go for the repair, and then you simply pass the sutures, tie them, bring it back through the periosteum, and then mark uh, how tight you want to be. Now, this is kind of key, if you look at this video, it shows that you have good range of motion. And then when I, I go, when I evert, it's not too tight. And right when I come to midline, that's when you want your augmentation to be tight so it's not over-tightened. And then of course we use uh, immediate weight-bearing, uh, start physical therapy at two weeks. So this is a country club tennis pro at six weeks, standing on his ankle. One of our, one of our soccer players at four weeks. This was a a, a professional CrossFit person at five weeks. So the reported literature for my last few slides, uh, Chris Kotzia and his his group um, had published, but also a group from um, a group from UCLA and uh, Korea showing that there was a significant improvement. They only had one recurrence out of twenty-eight patients. Um, A different study also looked at. Quick return to sport was only 84 Mm -hmm. days and no difference in plantar flexion. Mm -hmm. So we know that it's safe and now we have to do a comparison. So right now there is a multi-center trial underway, 100 patients, some are getting standard Brostrom, standard Brostrom plus augment. And so far the results are showing that the return to sport is significantly sooner. Thanks for your attention.
0: Thank you Eric. That was terrific. Uh, a nice comprehensive review of the technology. Go ahead and unshare your screen and, and uh, Ned if you'd like to, to start your screen share. Uh, my, my honor to, uh, to invite Ned Amendola from Duke to speak to us on uh, use of arthroscopy during uh, ankle ligament and syndesmosis surgery. So
3: we'll, uh, we'll have Ned uh, share his screen.
0: And, and uh, Ned, while you're bringing that up, Giza, if you want to unmute, um, I wanted to ask, uh, you, you mentioned that you'll use uh, uh, anchors for each of your ligaments. Um, yeah, do, you, uh, do, you, do you find that to be necessary when, you have, when you're using the internal brace as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because you have to still do a brostrum repair. And uh, my partner, Chris Krulin figured out a way to kind of add an extra suture onto the, the internal brace anchor so you can save a little money. Um, you know if you're in the private practice setting, but certainly that is the key point is that you need to do a full regular Brostom repair and this internal brace goes over the top of it. It is it is not the the primary repair. That's a great question and a good point to be made. Perfect. All right, Ned, I think you had it there a moment ago.
4: Okay, well thanks for uh, organizing this, Ken. Uh, you got a great uh, group of speakers. You've heard some great talks, great presentations and uh, I'm just gonna uh, <clears throat> emphasize that the use of arthroscopy is very important with ankle instability and syndesmotic injuries, and this has been mentioned already. Uh, These are my uh, disclosures. So uh, the question, is arthroscopy uh, necessary when uh, treating uh, chronic ankle instability? And uh, also, I'm gonna just uh, talk briefly on syndesmotic injuries, and uh, the brief answer is yes. uh, Definitely, every case you should consider doing arthroscopy. So at the time of ankle stabilization, I think you're dealing with osteochondral injury, especially with chronic instability, impingement lesions are present, and then also uh, soft tissue, synovitis, and scarring from the previous injuries, uh, loose bodies, and so forth. So I think arthroscopy will complete the surgery and avoid any chronic problems. So here's an example. You can see this is a very unstable ankle. Uh, You know, with the amount of space you got there, you got the osteochondral defect, and you can deal with the osteochondral uh, lesion. I'm not gonna talk about arthroscopic stabilization since that's been covered already. Um, <clears throat> so here's a uh, chronic instability. You can assess the amount of instability, especially with the emphasis on uh, medial instability. This is a case with uh, deltoid uh, injury as well. So I think it's important to uh, be able to assess that so that you can do the complete stabilization if there's any medial instability. It's uh, been shown by numerous authors uh, all the way back to Nick Van Dyke and his PhD thesis that with uh, acute ankle sprains, you're gonna get a significant incidence of chondral-tailor lesions, and you can deal with this um, and visualize the whole ankle arthroscopically. Again, with chronic ankle sprains, you get instability as you see here with uh, impingement and bone formation, loose bodies, and again, these can all be taken care of arthroscopically. Uh, these are very well visualized and very well taken care of uh, using arthroscopic techniques. I did uh, so. Here's the post-debridement uh, of the spurring anteriorly, spurring medially, and laterally that you can take care of. I did want to emphasize uh, that there's also um, an incidence of cam impingement. Uh, and again, I won't deal with that, but this is a different form of impingement where you have this uh, abnormal bony morphology, which I think does lend itself to chronic instability. As you see here in late stages of ankle arthritis, uh, you see these cases with the chronic slipping of the talus anteriorly. And I think this is because of chronic can impingement. So they have ankle instability, but they also have this bony morphology that you should recognize and take care of. Here's an arthroscopic view of the cam impingement. It's not the typical impingement. And again, you need to remove it. It's like hip cam impingement. Remove it from the tailor side, for the most part, to get rid of that uh, bony morphology and bony impingement. As you can see here, uh, pre and post uh, removal of that uh, thickening of the neck of the talus and the uh, cam component. In addition to taking care of the ankle pathology, if you're worried about other causes of pain, Uh, Related to functional instability, this is a case of a 16-year-old that had normal investigations. The question was, uh, what was causing her pain? And you can uh, also arthroscopy um, the subtalar joint. As you can see here, this is the interosseous ligament. And it's a normal subtalar joint. And we did perineal tendoscopy at the same time. So this is her perineal tendons. And uh, again, rather than just making an incision and doing surgery, I think investigating it using the arthroscope I think is useful. In this particular case, you can see that she's got uh, you know, nice normal tendons until we get here distally, distal to the uh, fibula. Um, again, uh, you can visualize there's gonna be a tear of the uh, perineal tendon here with the uh, probe going right within the tear. So again, you can use arthroscopy to complete the evaluation of the uh, chronic unstable ankle. And uh, so then we made a small incision right over the tear and repaired the uh, tear. So arthroscopy is essential with chronic ankle instability. I do it every time I do surgery uh, for instability. And again, there's uh, lots of uh, articles uh, supporting that point of view. And I I think it really adds to the complete uh, treatment of these patients and just uh, briefly to go over uh, syndesmotic injuries. The reason arthroscopy is useful for syndesmotic injury is that uh, uh, chronic syndesmotic sprains can be a cause of chronic ankle dysfunction and you can evaluate them using a scope. There's no direct diagnostic test to evaluate the severity of the syndesmotic injury and so you can use the arthroscope and uh, evaluate the spectrum of severity and uh, what you need to do in terms of stabilization. So again, Lots of structures are involved in that stability of the ankle. So the deltoid, the anterior and posterior tibial ligaments and the interosseous membrane, all of these can be visualized arthroscopically to assess their integrity. So you can assess the severity of the injury. So again, you can have a normal ankle with a normal syndesmosis, you can see here the distal syndesmotic ligament. You can have just disruption of the distal syndesmotic ligament without any instability. You can have more instability here, as you can see widening between the tibia and fibula and then significant displacement of the talus and fibula. So um, you can easily evaluate these arthroscopically. So here's a case of obviously you can tell there's some instability here and uh, the MRI demonstrates instability and and Dr. Hogan already went through that. But I think the arthroscopic evaluation uh, gives you a much clearer picture. And sorry, the video is not running here, but Um, You can see the probe between the tibia and fibula. The anterior ligament is disrupted. The posterior ligament was intact. And we can also visualize the deltoid. So we treated this with uh, flexible fixation. Here's an example of where arthroscopy would have been useful. This is a chronic high ankle sprain. Uh, This was a a lineman had a severe sprain. Uh, He played, but he was never 100%. And uh, here's his ankle around six months following the injury. And you can see he's been trying to stabilize this himself with this uh, calcification. And uh, here's the arthroscopic view. And you can see that he has instability there. And it wasn't visible on the x-ray in the mortise view. But arthroscopically, you can tell he's had chronic syndesmotic instability. And again, you can assess the injury completely. So we excise the calcification and stabilize the syndesmosis. And then finally, Here's an acute case, uh, no fracture, just a disruption of the deltoid and a disruption of the syndesmosis. Uh, here's the arthroscopic view, and it's nice to see the deltoid. It's a off the talus, and I think this gives you an idea that you can probably repair the deep deltoid uh, when you do the incision. It gives you an idea of the p- pathophysiology that's going on here. In addition, you can assess the syndesmosis. So here's the anterior and we're going to drive through sign and uh, basically taking a look at the posterior syndesmotic ligament. In just a second, you can see the chondral scuffing which has been cleaned up from the severe injury and there's the posterior syndesmotic ligament completely off the tibia. And uh, you can see it's, it's you know obviously reduced and uh, it's part of the injury pattern. So I think the arthroscopic view gives you a complete view of the injury, and you can also assess the post-reduction, uh, you know, treatment. In this particular case, the syndesmotic fixation was not enough, and we did the deltoid, the deltoid repair. And so I think the future holds uh, a little, a little bit more, which I've not covered. Is probably anatomic stabilization is probably going to be the way of the future. So actually fixing the syndesmosis, but also fixing the anterior tibial fibular ligament, a tibial uh, uh, fibular ligament, as you can see here, and the deltoid will provide much more rotationally stable results. And so I think this is going to be coming up in the future, especially with these arthroscopic techniques and the internal brace that's uh, just been talked about. So I think this is more likely the construct that we're going to be ending up uh, going forward. So, uh, in summary, syndesmotic injury is a spectrum of injury, just like chronic ankle instability. And I think arthroscopy is very useful in assessing the severity and helping you decide how you should treat uh, both of these injuries. Thanks for your attention.
0: Thank you, Ned. That was uh, really terrific. Uh, that was a, a great talk. If you want to go ahead and stop share, and then we'll ask uh, Dr. Canada from Italy to, uh, to, to share his screen. Uh, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Uh, Dr. Canada. Uh, join us uh, to give us the European perspective on ankle ligament surgery. John uh, Luigi, uh, go ahead and share your screen. Excellent, and take it away. Thank you.
5: Thank you, Ken. Uh, uh, we have uh, already uh, uh, known everything from the previous speakers, and uh, I must repeat uh, some of their points. In effect, uh, up to now, the open Broström procedure has uh, been considered the gold standard and uh, uh, we've seen how important is the arthroscopic examination during the surgery. So some have uh, proposed to go to a full arthroscopic technique instead of a hybrid procedure and uh, even if the uh, uh, um, a word uh, uh, consensus uh, review Uh, is uh, in favor of open surgeries Uh, Europe is uh, in Europe there is a wave uh, toward arthroscopic surgery as uh, we can see in uh, one of these uh, case numbers and uh, um, arthroscopic uh, techniques uh, have uh, many possibilities we can repair reconstruct and we go we can go uh, uh, all arthroscopically uh, to repair uh, the ligaments. Uh, another point is that the uh, lateral ligaments uh, are called by some uh, a complex because there are no clear distinct ligaments but they are connected and uh, this way we can repair it as a complex, them as a complex. And uh, uh, here we see the work of Guelfi, uh, showing that uh, we can repair the lateral complex ligament arthroscopically. And uh, uh, Vega is uh, another author that uh, is uh, working arthroscopically. And uh, uh, anatomy is important. Uh, now there is the concept that the anterior talofibular ligament has two fascicles, one superior uh, articular and uh, an inferior that is articular and uh, we can uh, repair these vesicles and uh, uh, try to restore anatomy this is the point to restore the uh, anatomy to regain function and we can augment these ligaments we have seen before these techniques but uh, we must take care of complications we have up to 20 percent of complication most of them are neurovascular and uh, uh, so uh, anatomy is uh, very important so uh, we cannot do these surgeries without uh, knowing uh, perfectly the anatomy and uh, uh, taking uh, uh, care that uh, endoscopic uh, uh, surgery is feasible And uh, uh, there are many papers uh, working toward this uh, uh, solution. And uh, this is uh, another uh, paper uh, showing that uh, we can uh, reconstruct the lateral ligaments. And uh, uh, here again, another, uh, these are published techniques so you can easily Uh, look at them later. And uh, uh, this is uh, another. And uh, uh, we can reconstruct ligaments arthroscopically in chronic laxities. Another concept uh, in European concept is the micro-instability that uh, may result from uh, an injury of the anterior talofibular superior fascicle. And uh, uh, This is an interarticular structure not repairing, and uh, 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 if associated uh, to uh, other uh, ligament injuries, uh, it can lead slowly to instability, uh, asymptomatic instability, and uh, uh, requiring surgery. And uh, uh, all these uh, surgeries require uh, an internal, Artros- articular inspection and uh, to reduce invasiveness, nanoarthroscopy <laughs> has been proposed uh, in this paper. And uh, uh, these are aiming to reduce the invasiveness of our surgeries. But we must keep in mind that the uh, anatomic restoration is the first aim. And uh, uh, this is why still now open techniques uh, can uh, work. And uh, if uh, we uh, find a way to restore anatomy, every kind of surgery can be good. And uh, this is an example of a mini invasive uh, Brustrom uh, procedure, reefing the lateral capsuloligamentous complex Including the calcaneofibular and the anterior talofibular ligaments, with a very uh, easy technique and fast and inexpensive. And uh, the outcomes, uh, uh, if you look at the literature, recent literature, we see that the arthroscopic techniques are improving, and uh, uh, we uh, c- can not see any more great differences. Taking care. In any way of the complications, but we need longer follow ups. We have already seen everything about the syndesmotic instability, uh, and uh, we um, cannot uh, solve uh, ankle instability without taking care of the syndesmosis. And uh, we must take care not to overcorrect, because a threshold of two millimeters may be uh, too much to little, too little and uh, uh, rehabilitation again we have already seen a, a timing of a rehabilitation the, the, the concept is that we need anyway some way of protection of our repairs otherwise they fail and uh, we can start with isometric contraction the question is how to uh, uh, find the best solution to promote healing without damaging the repair and uh, uh, this uh, uh, along with the neuromuscular rehabilitation uh, will be uh, the uh, future field of uh, research and uh, uh, finally uh, we have seen uh, an example of uh, international, uh, perspective about ankle surgery and it is curious curious to see that uh, COVID era is a cutting flights but uh, is favoring an extraordinary exchange of scientific knowledge and uh, we are working to establish a common international management of ankle instability for better outcome. Thank you.
0: Thank you, John Luigi, that, that was terrific. R- really appreciate your perspective. So we have about seven minutes left. I'd like to get through one case just to get some some input from the group. Um, we've had some very good questions that I've been fielding. Uh, there's there's uh, one that I'd like to mention and the other I'd like to pose to the group and then we'll go through the case. Um, one is that it was, it was brought up, uh, cost was brought up as we're presenting a lot of these techniques arthroscopic techniques and different implants, uh, cost considerations are really important, I think, everywhere. Um, and and that, uh, I think, is a bigger discussion and debate than seven minutes would allow. <laughs> um, the, the other uh, topic that's come up repeatedly is rehab. Um, and uh, it was brought up a, a very adroit point that, um, that are, there's no standard rehab technique either for conservative uh, treatment of, uh, of ankle ligament injuries or post-op. So I'd like to ask uh, all of the panelists to activate your videos and your uh, microphones if you're able to. Um, and I'd like you to open it up to the group. Uh, do, do you have thoughts on uh, on on rehab protocols? Um, and maybe Andy, I'll, I'll ask you uh, you that question first. Uh, what is your rehab protocol post-op and uh, what are your thoughts on on having that be, uh, be standardized or, or do you have something that's standardized at your institution?
3: So uh, it, it actually truly depends on the type of injury and the injury pattern and the repair. So it depends on the tissue for me. If it's a, it, so what, what kind of scenario are you presenting?
0: Well, both, uh, both non-op and post-op for lateral ligament repair.
3: Okay, so for a post-op for lateral ligament repair, if it's a, just a simple one, I actually get them going fairly fast. I do use a, a different sort of system. I use internal brace, but I'd use it as an, as an anchor system. So I can actually get them, uh, I, I initially splint them for about two weeks just to get the rest of the tissues. And then I get them on a stationary bike at the two-week mark um, going right away, full weight bearing. Um, at the six-week mark, they can actually look at doing some sport specifics. Uh, so it, this isn't just in the general ones. They can start doing sport specifics and then progress to sport hopefully sooner. And it depends on the patient. Uh, same thing goes for... Um, for obviously for the ankle sprains that are in a in a non-operative scenario, unfortunately in Canada we tend to get really disaster-type cases. So in those disaster-type cases, often you're looking at starting sport specifics at the three-month mark if they're really bad cases with bad tissue. So that that does change things a little bit. And then if the syndesmosis is involved, then you're a little bit slower in terms of mobilizing them.
0: Great, great comment. So uh, what I'd like to do is that this this one case, Andy, is your is your case. And I think it, it illustrates you know, many ankle ligament injuries uh, come along with risk factors and associated injuries like perineal tendons, uh, Lyman problems, et cetera, cartilage problems. So this case I think illustrates a lot of those. So I thought it'd be a good one to, to go through. Um, we have about five minutes, Andy. So if you wanna spend two minutes presenting this and then sure. we'll just open up the discussion.
3: So this is actually a 45 year old masters uh, former basketball player. She still plays basketball at the masters level. Had quite a few chronic ankle sprains and instability episodes, about three to four times a year. Worst one was in 2016, and she's had a few again this the, the year that she presented to me. Uh, she was treated aggressively with physical therapy, ankle bracing. Otherwise healthy, um, non-smoker, social drinker. So when you examine her, the biggest things that actually come up for her is that she has a fairly cavovarus uh, alignment. Not terrible, but there's a component of hind foot drive as well as some forefoot drive. Uh, she has laxity of the lateral ligament section, more CFL, which is interesting, also ATFL, quite tender along the perineals. Mm-hmm. And when you test the perineals, I think it's actually nice for me to have said four plus, but she's more of a four out of five. She had good tip post function, uh, quite a bit of impingement pain, uh, anterior medial, ankle, medial gutter, mild gastrocnemius contracture, and she has some mild paresthesia of the SPN, likely due to these instability episodes. Other than that, she's doing fairly well. Uh, this is the imaging that you can actually see uh, on her, uh, and you can see here that she has an increased marys angle, increased arch height, minor degeneration of the midfoot, uh, nothing there. On the hindfoot alignment view, on the next view there, she has a component of hindfoot varus, not horribly significant, but it's there. And she responded well to a capovirus orthotic. So when we gave her a capovirus orthotic, her pain uh, did improve uh, and she felt a bit more stable, which is interesting. MRI was done here. You can see that there's significant involvement of the perineal tendons there. You see that flattening of perineus brevis split tear, uh, thickening of the perineus longus in addition. Uh, and this goes all the way down, where you see it disappear in for the brevis. And so the brevis really is not existent uh, in the in, in region. Uh, lateral ligaments, uh, CFL is in bad shape, but it's present, the tissue is there. Uh, ATFL is uh, attenuated, but uh, tissue is there. And so that's really the situation. She's exhausted conservative uh, care. That I can think of, uh, EMG nerve conduction study. We just did that mainly for teaching for the residents. Was closely normal. There was no concerns, and she's an athlete, so um, really quite fit. Excellent. So this does this kind of brings to mind. I just see what you think. You can you can ask questions.
0: Yeah, that that's perfect. So I'll, I'll ask questions of the panel. Um, uh, Mac, maybe you can comment. So when you see something like this acutely, where you, you see a, a very clear hindfoot varus radiographically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a Um uh, but this is uh, this is sort of the acute setting. It's the first operation. There's perineal pathology. There's clear instability. It's uh, it's an, an elite recreational athlete, I guess. Um, so wh- what's your thought process? W- would you go to all of these osteotomies uh, at the beginning? Do you give them a, a primary repair? Do you do you selective osteotomies? What's your thought process here?
1: Uh, I I discuss all of it with them, Um, particularly in the setting of a cable various foot, that that is one of the things driving um, their recurrent instability. Uh, And I have an extensive discussion with them in regards to, hey, you may need a little more. Um, I do talk about a dorsiflexion osteotomy um, uh, as the first step, uh, just in my algorithm. uh, And in these extreme cases or or revision, I think about a heel slide. but I have that discussion with them uh, and, and talk about the challenges that it just really brings, uh, but um, uh, that we need to correct the boundary deformity to have the best definitive chance uh, at minimizing recurrence. Uh, but that's usually my discussion and we decide from there together. I
0: think that's a great approach. And it looks like Andy did a very nice uh, lateralizing calcaneal osteotomy uh, and orsoflexing osteotomy to address the mechanics. And I agree with you, that makes it much more predictable. Um, so uh, uh, Dr. Giza, um, you know, you talked about augmentation with, with internal brace. Do, do you, you know, the internal brace, the traditional internal brace, really only reconstructs the ATFL? Um, do you ever split that to address the CFL as well, and, and or uh, combine that with uh, with a uh, with a tenograft?
2: I do, and obviously, it's in cases like this. Um, the The CFL is such a big, stout ligament, and obviously, we discussed that today. That most of the time. Uh, you don't really need to internally brace that CFL for the standard case. I certainly have split them when I have a CFL that's more wispy. You have to be careful because that CFL, you want to put it underneath the CFL instead of over top of it because you don't want to irritate the Mm -hmm. cronial pendants. Yeah,
0: excellent. Well, we are, uh, that brings us to the end of our time. It is the top of the hour. So I just wanna say uh, thank you so much to our panelists and to everybody who uh, is joining us from around the world. Uh, this has been recorded, so it will be available through the ISCOS Global Link for those who wanna want to wanna go back through it. Um, thank you for, for joining us. Uh, uh, please keep yourselves, your family, and your, your uh, patients healthy. Um, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you at the uh, ISCOS Congress next year. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Ken.